A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Monday, the U.S. Juneteenth holiday well underway, but we still have the rest of the world to survey and a busy hour ahead on the program, including relations reboot. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Chinese President Xi holding the highest level talks between the two nations this year. Both sides citing progress in their attempts to break the diplomatic ice. Secretary Blinken describing the talks as candid and constructive and reiterating that the United States is not trying to contain China's economic growth. A live report just ahead. And today's meeting comes amid signs of economic slowing after China's initial post-lockdown growth spurt and some disappointment, at least for now, over broader stimulus pronouncements. Goldman Sachs lowering its GDP estimate for the country to 5.4% this year. That's down from an earlier 6% rise. And that brings Goldman Sachs numbers in line with the OECD, the Organization for Economic and Cooperation and Development says in its latest note that while the global outlook has improved, risks remain, including the impact of still high inflation and rising interest rates. Its views on China, jobs and the potential productivity impact of artificial intelligence. Of course, we couldn't escape that one. Coming right up, the OECD Secretary General Matthias Cormann will also discuss their new focus on women's economic empowerment. And in the meantime, a smattering of red arrows across China, Hong Kong and Japan today. The Nikkei leading the declines, falling 1%, but still sitting around those 33-year highs. Famed investor Warren Buffett announcing after the close that Berkshire Hathaway will invest more money into Japan's five largest trading houses. Buffett's bullishness helped jumpstart the rally in Japanese stocks earlier this year. And Europe softer after a winning week that saw the Zetra DAX over in Germany hitting record highs. Wall Street, of course, closed today for the Juneteenth federal holiday, but certainly no day off for U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. And the future of humanity hinges on China and the U.S. getting along. That's what China's President Xi Jinping told U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, according to Chinese TV. As the two superpowers try to manage tensions and turn the temperature in relations down. For his part, Secretary Blinken said both sides agreed they need to stabilize their relationship. Earlier, he met with China's top diplomat for around three hours. The State Department called it a candid and productive meeting. Blinken says a good relationship is in the world's best interests. We have no illusions about the challenges of managing this relationship. There are many issues on which we profoundly, even vehemently, disagree. We will always take the best course of action to advance the interests of the American people. But the United States has a long history of successfully managing complicated, consequential relationships through diplomacy. It's the responsibility of both countries to find a path forward, and it's in both our interests and the interests of the world that we do so. And Anna Corrin joins us now from Hong Kong. Anna, the discussions were described as healthy dialogue among many different adjectives and phrases used. I think perhaps the key takeaway, the positive aspect of this, is that actually Secretary Blinken managed to meet face-to-face -face with President Xi. 
Yeah, that's right, Julia. We didn't know if this meeting mm. was in fact going to, to take place. Uh, obviously, it was going to depend on how Anthony Blinken's meetings went with the uh, foreign minister, uh, Chin Gung, yesterday, and then today, the top diplomat, uh, Wang Yi. Uh, in total, he spent about 10 hours talking to, to both gentlemen. So I guess it was going to depend on how those talks went as to whether he was going to sit down uh, with the Chinese president. But that did take place in the Great Hall of the People uh, this afternoon. They spoke for about 35 uh, minutes. And, uh, you know, by all reports, it was a, a positive positive meeting. You know, I think what we, we need to remember is that Anthony Blinken, not only is he the US Secretary of State, but he is also one of Joe Biden's closest and longest time confidants. So whatever he was going to be saying was coming directly from the US president. We heard from Joe Biden over the weekend saying that he hopes to meet with Xi in the coming months. Now, Julia, we just heard from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They held a briefing with journalists and they said that Blinken's visit marks a new beginning. Now, this is interesting language because, you know, up until this visit, it was quite hostile uh, towards the United States. Obviously, you know, relations are at their worst ever. Uh, so to hear this coming from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, that this visit marks a new beginning is certainly very positive. But why don't we now listen to what Xi Jinping had to say uh, after their, their meeting? The Chinese side has made our position clear and the two sides have agreed to follow through the common understandings President Biden and I had reached in Bali. The two sides have also made progress and reached agreement on some specific issues. This is very good. This is very good. So that is uh, positive news. This was always about re-establishing lines of communication, uh, Julia. You know, they were never going to thrash out and solve the thornier issues and the ones that deeply divide the United States and China. But as we know, these are the two largest economies in the world, the two top trading partners. $700 billion of worth of trade between the US and China occurs every single year. Uh, these economies are entwined and, and they need to talk they need to communicate. And I think the takeaway from this trip is that everybody agrees that this is how it has to be moving forward. Yeah, it's in the interests of both nations and their citizens. Um, Anna, great to have you. Thank you. Anna Corrin there. And later in the show, we'll be hearing the view of Ambassador Max Barkis. He's the former US ambassador to China. Meanwhile, Italy has moved to protect Thai giant Pirelli's, Pirelli's independence from China over the weekend. Pirelli told investors that the Italian government has blocked Chinese chemical company Sinochem from taking control of the company. Sinochem is Pirelli's biggest shareholder. And at the same time, the Financial Times reports that drug maker AstraZeneca is planning to spin off its China business to protect itself from growing tensions surrounding Beijing. The company said it would not comment on rumours regarding future plans. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, I'm not even sure I need you. I've given all the details there, but you're going to have to explain. <laughs> I apologise for that. Um, you're going to have to explain it. Let's go back to Pirelli and talk about what's going on there, because this is complicated from the initial investment. It was never a Chinese state-owned company that originally invested in Pirelli, it then just got more complicated. So what's the Italian government saying on doing here? 
Ultimately, this is the Italian government flexing some political muscle, I think, stripping Sinochem, which, as you say, is state-owned, from having influence on strategy and leadership decisions at Pirelli, which actually means, in many ways, a return to the status quo with Camfin, which is a private investment vehicle, which has a much smaller stake in Pirelli, 14%. It's controlled by Pirelli CEO Marco Tronchetti Provera, and it will retain a lot of influence here. It's an example of a government using so-called golden power rules to protect an asset of national strategic importance. And actually, that is what the Italian government said last week in a, in a release. They said this is all about Pirelli's cyber tire, which uses chip technology to collect vehicle data. So they are protecting their interests by stopping the Chinese state from having any influence on this company's strategy. But... You know, there's also here, of course, an issue of national pride. This is one of Italy's oldest, most successful internationally recognized brands, Pirelli. It's been in the Pirelli family since it was founded. In fact, the current CEO married into the family. He took over from his father-in-law, who is the founder. And as politics, the Italian government is here showing a very strong stance against China. And as you say, the fact of the matter was there was a very much a shift in terms of that Chinese stake and who actually owned it. It was ChemChina that got swallowed up uh, by the Chinese state company. Company, uh, Sinochem. So there has been a shift in the politics as well. So there's a lot going on there, I think, in this decision. Yes, but I couldn't agree more with you about this being a, a crown jewel, I think, of the um, Italian state and a very old company in relative terms, too. So wanting to protect that to some degree, though one could also argue you want our cash, but not the interference. Um, <laughs> sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for. Um, let's talk about AstraZeneca as well, because this has been rumoured before as well, the possibility mm. of spinning off this China business. Any more detail on this? This was really interesting. and We got a very swift response from AstraZeneca this morning. A spokesperson told me we don't comment on rumours or speculations around future strategy and M&A, just what you would expect. The FT report suggests that the drug maker had been considering the move, as you say, for some time and that this would protect their operations from political conflict in China and the West, which is, of course, a hot topic for today. I would consider this perhaps less of a assuming it's true, less of uh, AstraZeneca pulling out of China and actually in many ways it pushing in because this may remove all sorts of barriers to drug development and getting drugs approved in the Chinese market, which is a big market for AstraZeneca, also freeing up in terms of new financial uh, resources there. And if you consider every single day we talk about AI, we talk about data sharing and the regulations being drawn up in the West, and you consider perhaps the lack of regulations and the lack of barriers in China, this could, if true, allow AstraZeneca to move much faster in the Chinese market. Yeah, and again, raising a lot of money in the process. Anna Stewart, thank you. Ukraine claiming more gains in the counteroffensive. The military says it's recaptured eight settlements in the past two weeks. The most intense fighting is now taking place on the southern front, according to President Zelensky. Russia will lose the occupied territories. There is no and will be no alternative to our steps for the occupation. Our troops are advancing position by position, step by step. We are moving forward. Meanwhile, take a look at this video. Russia says it's remotely detonated a tank filled with explosives in an apparent new tactic. Ben Weidman joins us now from Zaporizhia. Ben, let's talk about that first. Have we managed to geolocate that incident there? And if if what the defence ministry is saying is true, have we seen this used as a tactic before? 
Uh, yes, we believe it's in the Marinka area, which is near the city of Donetsk in the Donbass uh, region. Now, according to an account of this incident put out by the Russian Defense Ministry on its Telegram channel, what you're seeing is a T-54 tank. That's a Soviet-era tank built in the years after World War II. Now, according to this account, uh, the tank was crammed with 3.5 tons of TNT plus a thousand kilos of explosives extracted from other bombs as well. According to this account, apparently a tank man got in the tank, essentially pointed it in the direction of Ukrainian lines, jumped out, it went forward, it appears to have hit a mine and also got hit by an RPG round fired from the Ukrainian lines, and then it explodes. The explosion is massive, clearly there are some a huge quantity of explosives in that tank when it goes off. We don't know whether it actually succeeded in puncturing the Ukrainian lines. It appears to have been about 300 uh, meters from the Ukrainian lines. And we don't know if they actually the Russians were able to push forward in that particular area. But it does represent a new, if somewhat crude, tactic. And it's difficult to say if this is going to be used on a wider scale, but it certainly is dramatic. At least that can be said, Julia. Certainly. Ben Weedman, thank you. Jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny appeared in public today for the start of a new trial that could keep him behind bars for the next 30 years. Navalny, already serving a multi-year sentence for fraud and contempt of court, appeared before a Russian court set up in the penal colony where he's being held. Navalny calling the new charges of extremism leveled against him absurd. And the Israeli army launched a large-scale military operation in occupied West Bank city of Jenin today, triggering a huge firefight with Palestinian militants. Palestinian officials say at least five people lost their lives, including a teenager. Dozens more were injured. Israel says it entered the city to arrest two suspects. Seven of its forces were injured too. Hadis Gold joins us now from Jerusalem. Hadis, what more can you tell us about the events that led up to the outbreak of violence? Yeah, Julia, from what we understand, this was supposed to be an arrest raid to arrest two wanted suspects, but it escalated into something much, much bigger. And this lasted at something like 10 hours. We just got word within the last uh, half hour or so that the Israeli military is finally completely out of Janine. Janine, uh, we've often reported on, is a hotspot city in the occupied West Bank. Lots of militant activity there, lots of regular Israeli military raids. But what happened today shows an alarming increase in firepower being used used by both the Israeli military and the Palestinian militants. We have some dramatic videos of, of several incidences. The first I want to bring up is a roadside IED bomb that detonated uh, as an Israeli military, what's called a Panther command vehicle, was driving by. And according to the Israeli military, this IED roadside bomb essentially blew off the entire underside of this vehicle. And that is where some of those Israeli, uh, Israeli military injuries were coming from. Now, the IED is saying this will essentially, the use of these IEDs will essentially change how they 
as they, quote, conduct their business in the occupied West Bank, uh, and that it's it's a rather alarming sort of new firepower they see being used. Uh, as in addition to the IED and the heavy gunfire, the Israeli military is saying that several of their vehicles were rendered inoperable. At some point, they say soldiers were still within Janine for hours waiting for extraction. We do know that all the soldiers now are out of Janine, and the Israeli military essentially uh, portrayed what was happening there as very harsh. Now, we have five Palestinians have been killed, and something like uh, we're seeing do- absolutely dozens, like uh, more than 90 injured as well, seven Israeli forces injured. Among the dead, we have at least confirmation that two militants belonging to Islamic Jihad were killed, but also among the dead are a 15-year-old boy. Among the injured is a young girl, as well as a photojournalist, a freelance photojournalist who was covering the raid. And from images we're seeing, he was wearing protective gear that identified him as a member of the media. Also, though, for the first time in decades, really since the Second Intifada, since the early 2000s, the Israeli military used an Apache helicopter to fire uh, while they were trying to extract soldiers. The Israeli military said that they fired towards open area to provide cover for their soldiers while they were trying to undertake this rescue operation. But this is a significant development because something like this has not been used since the very tense, very violent days of the Second Intifada. And that's what's so concerning here is what we're seeing on the ground is the IEDs being used by the militants. And now as we see this Apache helicopter being used on a very, very, very dense urban area in the occupied West Bank at the same time. Julia. Hadas. Hadas Gold in Jerusalem. Thank you. And we're back after this. Stay with First Move. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. The global economy is showing signs of improvement, but progress is fragile. That's the latest outlook from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It forecasts headline inflation in the OECD will slow to 6.6% this year and 4.3% in 2024. That's thanks in part at least to tighter monetary policy and also lower food and energy prices. But the OECD says inflation is still a threat to growth as well as the impact of Russia's war in Ukraine. Joining us now is the OECD Secretary-General, Matthias Kuhlmann. Secretary-General, great to have you on the show. There's good and bad, I think, in this outlook. There's a lot of work been done to try and restrain out-of-control prices in uh, significant swathes of the world. The problem is high interest rates and high inflation is weighing on consumers. 
Well, the outlook for the global economy has improved somewhat, though yes, uh, it uh, still, uh, by historical standards, uh, is uh, a low growth uh, recovery. Uh, and, and indeed, I mean, inflation uh, is uh, a key challenge uh, to, to tackle, and central banks around the world are making the necessary decisions uh, to tighten monetary policy. But what we're also saying to governments around the world, uh, we really need to see uh, governments uh, make decisions on fiscal policy uh, that support uh, the monetary policy uh, fight to tackle inflation. In many parts of the world, the high spending that these governments uh, enacted during the pandemic is still providing, I think, an important cushion in the face of, of rising interest rates. But what are you saying that you want to see more uh, growth targeted fiscal policy from these governments rather than just relying on central banks to try and do the work by, by tightening interest rates? Well, I mean, there was a clear reason for fiscal support to cushion the impact of the pandemic. Uh, but, you know, we're on the other side of uh, that now and we've experienced post-pandemic a strong and rapid recovery. But of course, then we had the impact of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine and the impact in particular that had on energy and food prices. And, and governments around the world have uh, pursued uh, measures to cushion the impact of that. But energy prices now are uh, well below uh, their peaks. I mean, they've started to go down. And, you know, one of our key messages to governments around the world is as growth picks up, uh, as energy prices and inflation comes down, uh, it's important to really uh, much more narrowly target uh, the fiscal support that's provided and, and to get more, I mean, to essentially make the job of central banks to get inflation under control easier, not harder by continuing uh, to provide uh, you know, blanket levels of support. Yeah. They should be working uh, against each other, providing more spending support and then relying on the central banks to, um, to tighten rates to try and contain it. Um, we have got central banks now, certainly in um, the Western world, perhaps moving in different directions. The United States has signaled a pause, at least for now. The European Central Bank is still hiking. Then look at China and, and they're cutting rates over there. Can you give me a sense of what your outlook is for China and whether you expect significantly more stimulus coming from the government to our point about well, government well, I mean, doing different. some work. Well, I mean, different economies in different parts of the world are in, in different uh, stages of the monetary policy tightening cycle. And I mean, certainly the US Federal Reserve uh, went very hard uh, earlier and for some time. And uh, and indeed, I mean, you know, obviously, as you go forward, uh, you, you need to uh, give yourself the time to properly assess as, as the risks of doing too much or too little become more equally balanced. Uh, you know, it's, it's important to really focus very carefully on the data that's coming through. I mean, in Europe, I I mean, you know, we see that there is uh, some more tightening that is uh, likely to be required. But again, of course, uh, you know, these decisions uh, will be uh, informed by the data as it, as it comes through. Uh, you know, in, in relation to China, you know, obviously they are assessing uh, the data that they're looking at as, as they are making their decisions. I mean, not no two economies uh, are entirely uh, in, in the same uh, stage. And, and of course, you know, relevant decisions have got to be made based on the relevant data in relevant economies. Yeah, part of the debate that's being um, had in the United States is whether the targets for inflation even bear relation to the world we're in today with the energy transition that you've mentioned that's taken place, particularly in places like Europe. But if we talk specifically about the United States, the shift in supply chains, changes in globalization, do you worry that central banks in particular are pushing towards inflation targets that aren't really relevant for today's economies and that the danger well, is perhaps they go too far? 
Well, inflation targets have served as well, and inflation targets uh, are important. I mean, you are right. There are different factors driving inflation. But I mean, but what we see is that the supply chain pressures, you know, in the context, you know, in the aftermath of the pandemic, in the context of the war of Ukraine, I mean, supply chain pressures have actually uh, eased. And, and it is very important uh, to get inflation durably under control and to ensure that inflation expectations are well anchored. I mean, in the end, it's the lowest uh, income uh, people uh, in economy around the world that get hit the hardest and get hurt the most when inflation gets out of control. And, and so in terms of stability and the capacity to sustainably grow the economy moving forward and offer the best possible opportunity for people to get ahead, having a stable inflationary environment you know, is a very important ingredient. So you know, I would certainly caution against any suggestion that you know, the inflation targeting approach by central banks is no longer required. It's, it's a very central and important feature uh, of um, our economic stability uh, and will be so into the future. Certainly. Can't argue with that. Um, I think one of the other things, obviously, that governments are focused on is um, trying to increase jobs wherever you are in the world and productivity, I think, which has also perhaps taken a hit too. Can I ask you what the OECD's stance at this moment is on um, generative AI? and artificial intelligence and whether you see that as a net positive perhaps for, for jobs and productivity. Do you even have a stance yet? Well, I mean, so it is certainly an evolving conversation and we recognise the, the significant upside benefits from generative AI, but like, you know, including when it comes to productivity improvements, but as with anything new and as in anything that is evolving rapidly, it also comes with new and evolving uh, challenges, risks and disruptions. And it's important that, uh, you know, policy settings, policy frameworks uh, ensure that uh, the use of uh, AI and generative AI in particular uh, is, is, is safe, is appropriate and is channeled in the right direction. And in that context, uh, certainly we are involved in policy uh, conversations on, on how current regulatory frameworks can be appropriately uh, adjusted in order to cater for that. In fact, uh, Japan's uh, G7 presidency has initiated the Hiroshima process, which is uh, a, a, a process to engage in a global conversation about how to ensure that regulatory and policy frameworks uh, appropriately facilitate the innovation and the upside benefits, but also appropriately manage some of the downside risks and disruptions. Yeah, I love that you're part of the discussion because I think we all need to be talking about this. Every voice counts on this to try and understand how we best regulate it and, and foster um, the benefits of the technology. Now, that wasn't in your outlook. I apologise for that. What was, though, um, was a specific section on women in the workplace. And I don't want to single out women specifically for this because care has come in all forms. But more often than not, I think the greater burden of, of family care certainly falls on, on women in households and the balance of work as the pandemic, I think, also proved, became a challenge at a time when working from home is becoming, I think, more contentious, certainly than it was. Um, what are your findings in this report and what is the best way to utilise women in the workplace in your mind? Well, well, a couple of important points. Firstly, I mean, significant strides have been made in improving gender equality in the workforce, but across OECD countries, uh, there's still a significant gap. I mean, when it comes to employment participation between men and women at their prime working age, uh, you know, men, about 15%, uh, men have a workforce participation about 15% higher uh, than women. And I mean, there's a range of uh, issues and, and I mean, you know, obviously flexible uh, working arrangements are important. The, uh, you know, we need to ensure that the 
tax and transfer systems, the social benefits that don't provide disincentives uh, to uh, increase workforce participation uh, by uh, women, and, and indeed access to childcare. Now, uh, this is also, this is, I mean, you know, gender equality is important for women, yes, but it's actually also important for our economies and reaching the full potential of our economies. I mean, what we've said in our report is that across OECD economies, if we were to achieve gender equality in workforce participation and hours worked, I mean, it would boost uh, GDP across OECD economies by about 9.2%, uh, uh, which, which, uh, which is quite uh, significant. And as we, you know, we're facing the structural challenge of population aging, which means that the working age population is shrinking, there's a, there's a drag on workforce participation levels, we just can't afford uh, to have this uh, very significant resource available and, and not having, and not properly tapping into it. And so that is, I guess, one of the policy areas uh, that uh, from the OECD perspective, we're really trying to uh, put a spotlight on to say there is more opportunity here uh, for the, to the benefit of everyone uh, to um, improve uh, gender equality and in particular female uh, workforce participation levels. Yeah, and that's why I chose to spotlight it too, because that statistic for me leapt out. We have the potential there, we just need to unlock it. Um, OECD Secretary General Matthias Corman there. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us. Okay, coming up after the break, global issues, Russia, Taiwan and North Korea, all part and parcel of talks between the United States and China in Beijing. The question is, what was actually achieved? We'll discuss. Welcome back to First Move and returning now to the talks between the United States and China in Beijing. And was it really a case of mission accomplished, at least on the part of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken? He said he was able to strengthen communications channels, make clear their positions and intentions on areas of disagreement and explore where interests align on transnational challenges. Here in Beijing, I had an important conversation with President Xi Jinping and I had candid substantive and constructive discussions with my counterparts, Director Wang Yi and State Councillor Chen Gong. I appreciate the hospitality extended by our hosts. In every meeting, I stress that direct engagement and sustained communication at senior levels is the best way to responsibly manage our differences and ensure that competition does not veer into conflict. And I heard the same from my Chinese counterparts. We both agree on the need to stabilize our relationship. And that's the positive spin. There's much to discuss. Max Barkas is a former United States Senator and Ambassador to China, and he joins us live now from Hong Kong. Ambassador, great to have you on the show with us. The bar was set pretty low, I think, for this meeting on both sides. Can we call it a success? The fact that the Secretary of State actually met with President Xi is a, a strong starting point. Can we call it that? Yes, I think it's, it's progress, uh, but it's very limited progress. I'm mm. reminded, frankly, of the, the Bali uh, meeting between the President Biden and, and President Xi. That was supposed to be a floor in the uh, deteriorating relationship between the United States and China. It didn't work out, um, I think, in part because when both leaders went back home to their home states, it's kind of business as home countries, it's business as usual. In fact, things got worse. So this is an effort to try to put another floor, that is try again to put a floor on the downward spiral. And I think it, it's, both countries realize it's get, the, the tension is getting much more serious and maybe we better do something about it. Um, and so far it's talk. 
Um, and the real challenge is going to be uh, when Secretary Blinken goes home and when um, the Chinese uh, foreign diplomat Chin Gong and, and Wang Yi go, go back to Beijing or stay there, what are they going to do? It really comes down to deeds, not words. A lot of nice-sounding words. And I hope that very much that uh, both countries don't do anything stupid. By that I mean don't, do, don't take some action that undermines the, the good words and the, the good feelings that occurred uh, during this meeting between Blinken and, um, and Wang Yi, and, and, and including President Xi. It's a valid point. And I think it, what remains a key division is the lack of agreement over why actually relations have deteriorated so badly, not just in and under this administration, I think, but you could argue over the past decade or two decades. Do you think, to your point about no missteps between perhaps now and let's say the fall, the APEC meeting that's set to take place in San Francisco, do you think at least for now this paves the way, barring any uh, interceding disasters, for the two presidents to meet there? I, I certainly hope so. And I frankly think both countries are going to work very hard to prevent any misdeeds or, or do anything nutty or stupid mm. so that uh, President Xi can attend that APEC meeting uh, in November and, and possibly meet with, with President Biden. It's going to take incredible discipline, though, on both sides. Incredible. Uh, because back in the United States, um, uh, uh, President, Blinken, uh, President Biden is going to be at, uh, somewhat attacked by some of the hawks in, in, uh, in the United States. And I think President Xi is going to have a lot of pressure from the military in China as well. So it'll take a lot of discipline for each country to not do anything nutty and to make sure that we keep this good feeling. And, and actually, the, the longer we can not do anything nutty, the more that I think that's going to help uh, pave the communication that we all want. I love these diplomatic terms, nutty and stupid, Ambassador. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I think that's worthy. Yes, that's a good, that's a good Montana American phrase. Not doing anything nutty or stupid. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate it. The Brits also appreciate it. I can tell you. Um, what wasn't achieved in these talks, and perhaps you could help us understand why, is the reopening of military to military lines of communication. To your point about unfortunate um, skirmishes and near misses, we had a plane, a Chinese military plane and a US military plane come within three meters of each other at the back end of last year. Then we had a near miss in the Taiwan Strait. These are awkward moments made dramatically worse by the fact that there aren't communications to explain and say, look, this is what was going on. Why would China not want to reestablish these lines of communication? Well, it's a major disappointment. I, clearly, listening to uh, Secretary Blinken, he, he was quite disappointed when he had to admit that there was no agreement. It's unclear why uh, China would not agree to set up mill-mill. Um, it's very, very important, as you say. It's, in part, I think it's, it's the uh, Chinese military, and they're a little nervous. They're not sure they want to do this yet. But it's, we just don't know. And But I do think what Blinken said is, is accurate. we got to keep trying. Just keep trying. But it's important not to put too much pressure on China. I think if we urged uh, China to reestablish mill mill but do it privately, then it's more likely to occur. And say if we don't, you do China, don't agree to it, after a while we're going to have to uh, talk about it publicly. That's such a great point, Ambassador. And I think perhaps the more important question that I should be asking from your experience of, of being there and interacting in the, I think, the clear cultural misunderstandings and miscommunications that seem to be taking place and have taken place over a number of years. What is the best way? 
to communicate with the, the Chinese government, whether it's for cooperation on things like climate change, whether it's strategic challenges like intellectual property theft or, or concerns about those kind of things. What is the best way to compete but also cooperate with China? Well, yeah, well, I, there, there are two answers to that question. One is when I was serving in Beijing, it's kind of corny, but I developed my three Ps. That is, with China, you got to be patient, you got to be positive, and you got to be persistent. Just stick with it, stick with it, but in a positive, upbeat way. Don't embarrass them. Don't do anything that's going to make them lose faith. Second, I think that in, in some of the critical issues, let's say Taiwan or, or maybe it's, it's in Russia, that we have to sit down and, and tell China where our red line is, but do it privately. Don't embarrass them. Keep talking about it privately and say, hey, China, you can't go over this red line. We're not gonna, and if you do, you're going to pay tremendous consequences. But do it privately. After a while, we may have to be public about it, but we start out private. They're going to respect that we're dealing with them privately, and we're likely to get action. Yeah, it's just a complete cultural difference, truth to power and free speech in the United States versus um, the, the danger of embarrassing a, a political leader um, in China. Um, I want to ask you about where this leaves the rest of the world. Uh, ambassador, in your view, we've gone through a number of meetings now, the G7 meeting, where there seemed to be at least certain European leaders that were saying that we don't want this to be an anti-Chinese meeting. We had uh, President Macron of France taking business leaders to Beijing and, and saying that we don't want to have the same kind of relationship with the United States. Where does this meeting and this sort of hoped for transition in the relationship leave other nations, be it Europe, India, um, regional countries there too? Well, I think uh, one of the objectives of President Xi was to show that China is, is mature, uh, that China can be um, broker agreements on, on the world stage. And it, the more it can show to the world that it's mature, that is, President Xi actually meeting with Secretary Blinken, the more that sends a signal to Europe that, hey, we can deal with you. On the other hand, if more President Xi and China look like they're immature, that is, they, they're, they're stiff arm in the United States, then the more I think that's going to allow uh, European countries to more ally themselves with the United States and it's going to be disadvantageous to, to, um, to China. So I think President Xi did a pretty good job um, when he met with Blinken and showed that, hey, we're, we want to work together with you Americans. And I think that's going to be noted by the Europeans and therefore the Europeans are going to say, gee, maybe we could work with China after all. Yeah, my takeaways from this conversation, avoid nutty and stupid behavior and um, understand, try and understand those cultural differences. Um, Ambassador, great to have you on the show as always. Thank you so much Thank for you. your wisdom. You bet. Thank, Thank you. you. We're back after this. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Now a disturbing story from Kenya. Hundreds of victims have been found in a Kenyan forest since late April, many of them young children. 
The leader of a religious cult is accused of brainwashing followers to starve themselves and their family members. David McKenzie spoke with families affected by the group, and we want to warn you, his report contains disturbing material that may be quite hard to watch. He called it the wilderness, luring his flock to a remote corner of Kenya. We've come to try and understand how over many months so many could die. In the Shakahola forest, the dead are still being found. Forensic teams carefully remove the remains of members of a Christian death cult from shallow graves. They've already unearthed more than 300 people, many of them children, many showing signs of starvation. It's painful. It was so painful. It was so painful. Yeah, this is my daughter. Francis Wanje says his daughter and son-in-law both abandoned good jobs and took their children to the forest cult. What happened next is hard to comprehend. Abel should die and to meet Jesus. And they had to start with the children. The members of the cult, including your own family, they yes. were starving the children. Yes. And then when the children didn't die quickly enough... They suffocated them. They suffocated them. They suffocated them, yes. And... This is your own blood. And I wonder where my children or my child, my daughter, could change to be such an animal, a world animal, to kill her own children. Pastor Paul McKenzie began his cult in Melindi. This is the church where Pastor McKenzie had a huge following in his sermons. He amplified his message online. He preached a doomsday prophecy for at least a decade, calling on the faithful to reject modern society, pull children from school, avoid hospitals. He demanded total devotion. You must deny yourself. You must reject yourself. You must reach a point of ending your life, he says, for the sake of Jesus. His anti-government stance got him arrested and detained, but never prosecuted. In 2019, the church was closed down. Later, the pastor started his forest community. We found a former cult member in Melindi. We agreed to hide her identity for her own safety. She escaped the forest last year. Why did you move your whole home and all your children and move into the forest? The pastor used to call me, she says. He was calling me, telling me, my daughter, you are being left behind. And when the ark is closed, it will be too late. So I decided to go. When the COVID pandemic hit, she says many saw it as evidence that the prophecies were real. Mackenzie charged her family $80 for a piece of land in Galilee. There were seven other biblically named settlements in Shakahola with more than a thousand followers, she says. Still, cult members made regular trips to a nearby village for food and water. In December, those trips suddenly stopped, says this village elder. The starvation had begun. He says they alerted authorities, but they did nothing. Even after hungry children started escaping to the village. What's been called the Shakahola massacre has shocked this nation. Pastor McKenzie and his closest followers are being held under terror laws. What happened in the forest with your followers? I can tell nothing about that because I've been in custody for two months. So I don't know what, what is going outside there. Have you been there? 
Francis Wanje says there needs to be justice. He mounted a rescue mission to get his grandchildren out. When they found his grandson Ephraim, he was close to starvation. His two brothers were already dead. He went through hell. He went through hell. I'm telling you. In fact, when he was rescued, he told them that uh, if you could come here, maybe late, a bit late, you already find me had already gone to see Jesus because the grave is there. The very highest levels of the Kenyan government have apologized for their inaction and the pain it has caused. The scale of what happened in the forest is still being understood. Hundreds are still missing and many more mass graves need to be exhumed. David McKenzie, CNN, Melindi, Kenya. Welcome back to First Move. Now, our regular viewers will know we love exploring tech advances like artificial intelligence and robotics on this show. And while the robots may not be taking over anytime soon, they certainly captured a fair amount of attention at this year's Viva Tech in Paris. As Eleni Jokos reports. Emotional robots, pet robots, heavy lifting robots, and a crowd of tech enthusiasts. You're looking at the next generation of robots on display at tech fairs in Europe. Despite widespread concerns about artificial intelligence, developers say these robots were made for good. ErgoCup, for instance, was built for helping people with their difficult physical tasks. Picture it bringing in grocery boxes, taking out the trash, or working in warehouses to reduce physical stress and the risk of injuries to workers. ErgoCup is being developed in Italy. The Italian Institute for National Insurance uh, that is foreseeing uh, future applications of the robot to reduce the impact of musculoskeletal diseases. At the Paris tech fair VivaTech, developers are showcasing Buddy, an emotional robot, programmed to show feelings and, they say, capable of developing new ones. For example, he can help children who have been in hospital for a long time to continue their lessons at a distance. It will also help autistic children improve their ability to communicate with others. Meet Meraki, a twin robot. It's able to grasp things, perform simple tasks, and interact with people. This one is named Miraki and is saying he is the brother of Miraka. These two characters have escaped from a cartoon to enter our daily lives and help us manage our social spaces. Places like hospitals, hotels, restaurants, and tons of other places where there are lots of objects to move around. But it's not just robots on display at VivaTech. Historical figures are also back to life. French startup Jumbo Manor used AI to generate famous Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh, who died over a century ago, but is now back to answer your questions. Also answering questions at VivaTech, Elon Musk. There's a real danger for digital superintelligence uh, having negative consequences. And so if we are not careful with creating artificial general intelligence, uh, we could have potentially a catastrophic outcome. 
But he went on to say the most likely outcome for AI is positive. And that's something the robots might agree with. Yes, it is important to remember that these technologies can also have a positive impact on our lives if used responsibly. And finally, a day to remember for hundreds of dashing owners in Melbourne, Australia, who broke the Guinness World Record for the largest walk by a single breed of dog. The organiser thought it was high time the Dachshunds took the title. The current record is 1,029 beagles in the UK. So we're hoping today that we can beat the beagles. Wow, so they smashed it. The group beat the previous record set in 2018 with an official tally of nearly 1,400 dashings. That is nothing to be sniffed at, but I'm sure there's plenty of sniffing and uh, general chaos there. Congratulations to those darling dashings. And that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.